when you listen to music in different settings, you hear and catch different things. When you listen uh, on really good headphones, you, you find little intricate things in the beat that you may not have noticed when you listen with the cheap iPhone earbuds. When you listen to uh, music in your car and you have a decent system in your car, you can feel the bass rattle in a unique way. When you listen uh, on the computer with those cheap kind of monitor speakers, uh, some of the nuances and things in the beat are distorted. The text that we're going to look at today is going to show us how we can actually hear something within the brokenness of our world. That when we hear reports of brokenness, when we hear reports of suffering, when we experience suffering and brokenness, that there is actually echoes of redemption and glory within those groans of pain. That when we have the perspective and the understanding and the lens of the gospel, we can hear within the groans of brokenness the sound of glory coming. This is what the Apostle Paul in the letter to uh, the Romans is going to lay out in the chapter we're going to look at. He's in chapter 8. He's just uh, preceded the passage that we're going to look at. He has just spoken about suffering and sharing in glory, that if we suffer like Christ, we share in glory like Christ. And he's not saying uh, we'll become masochists. He's just saying if we endure through the pain of life, much like Christ did, we will then, by faith in him, share in the glory that came out of his suffering. And what this passage is trying to do, what the Apostle Paul is trying to do, is he's trying to help us to see that when we hear brokenness, when we see brokenness in us and in the world, that that's not the only sound for us to hear and observe. That there's something greater coming if we have the ears and the faith to hear it. So let's look at Romans 8. You can open your Bibles or click them on or look up. Romans 8. Verse 18 through 25, the Apostle Paul writes this to the church at Rome. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For their creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly as we, oh, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Advent is about hope, among many other things. But Advent is about hope, and the hope comes from looking back to the first coming of Jesus and saying, hope is here. But part of Advent, this Christmas season, is also looking forward to the second coming of Jesus and saying, hope is on the way. 
And what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's trying to get his hearers, his, 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 this church that he cares for that's enduring suffering in two ways. They're enduring the suffering of, of physical persecution for trusting Jesus, but they're also enduring the suffering and the brokenness that every human being experiences because we all know that there is something wrong with this world. He's trying to get them to understand that the suffering of this present time, verse 18, which is literally the suffering of the now time, is not worthy to be compared with the glory that's coming. So he's saying the brokenness of this world, the suffering that you endure, it's not worthy to be compared with the glory that's coming. That is the beauty, the splendor, the weight, the perfection, the rightness of God redeeming and restoring all of creation. He says you can't compare them. It's like holding a candle to the sun. And so what he's trying to get us to do is to do something different. He's trying to get us to look at brokenness in a whole new way by looking at it not just for what it is in the present, but looking at it, dealing with it, helping to alleviate it, but then looking through it to see that there's a glory coming on the other side. Now, this is really important because the way people make it through life the way people get through life is with the fuel of hope. Hope is the only way you make it through life. Hope is often the only way you make it through your week, right? When you're dealing with a week that's difficult at work or you're on a project that you hate or you're working with people who just annoy you to no end, the hope that fuels you is 6 p.m. or 5 p.m. or whatever it is that you get off the clock. The hope that fuels you is the weekend where I don't have to see them. The hope that fuels you is a, a good night's rest. The hope that fuels you is watching that show, right? Fuel is how we get, the fuel of hope is how we get through any circumstance. So the Apostle Paul is trying to gird us up with hope so that we can endure the brokenness of life. And we don't have to do a ton of research or observation to know that the world is broken, right? We don't, we don't have to do much to see that. It doesn't take a PhD to recognize that, right? All we have to do is flip the news on briefly. We see what's happening in Aleppo. We see what's happening in Syria. We understand the world is broken. Right? We, we see what's happening in our own backyard and violence and hatred and, and just disunity. We see that the world is broken. But this passage is going to show us that it's not much help to just know that the world is broken. The help actually comes in knowing that creation's brokenness is unnatural. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in, in 8. He starts, or this is, this is interesting. This is uh, some of the uniqueness of Christianity. He starts in 18 by saying, hey, the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed to us, the glory that's on the way, that's, that's, um, that's coming soon. And then he does this. He says, 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. That's strange. The Apostle Paul starts to talk about creation, the earth, all that is in it, as if it's a person. You guys remember seventh grade English, right? This is personifa, personification, right? The Apostle Paul is personifying creation as if creation is waiting and longing like a person would, right? Which you look at the story of the Bible, this makes a lot of sense because the Psalms talk about the, the mountains clapping before the glory of the Lord, right? This, this idea of that creation has embedded within it just this, uh, this sense of knowing that it's created. And the Apostle Paul starts by, by saying this. He's saying creation 
itself knows that it's broken, and creation itself is longing for the revelation of the children of God. Because at the revelation of the children of God, the glory of the renewed earth with Christ at the center is brought in completion, in full. And so he says this, that creation is longing and longing and waiting eagerly for the, redemp- for the full experience of redemption for God's people because tied up in that redemption is the redemption of all creation. Why, is he, why does he say this? Why, why, why is he talking about this? Well, if you look at the next verse, he's going to talk about this, that it's not only that creation is longing, but look at the reason, 20, for creation was subjected in, to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage and corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is that? What is that all about? What the Apostle Paul is, is saying this, he's saying that hope comes when you understand that the world is broken, but more than that, when you understand that the world's brokenness is unnatural. And that coming is hope. Look at what he says in 20. Creation was subjected to futility. This is subjected, this is uh, uh, given a, a verdict of, of brokenness. This is something that is fractured, that's broken, that's, that's frustrated. You've experienced this with technology, right? When you, you get a piece of technology, it's supposed to work in a certain way, and whatever you do is just broken, and you become frustrated. It's an object that is futile. It's subjected to futility. Its purpose cannot be, uh, cannot be realized or activated. It just doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. It's subjected to futility. And the Apostle Paul is saying, when you see the brokenness of this world, when you see the suffering in your own life, when you see just the fact that your body doesn't work the way it's supposed to work, when people don't re- interact uh, together the way they're supposed to interact, he wants you to understand, he wants us to understand that that is unnatural. That that is a relationship, that is a body, that is creation that is not able to express the wholeness that it's really meant for. It is fractured and broken. What the Apostle Paul is alluding to here is really the the big uh, turning point in the story of Scripture. He's he's drawing us back to Genesis chapter 3, when humanity rebels, commits treason against God. God had appointed humanity to be his vice rulers over creation, to cultivate it, to grow it, to make it awesome, to name the animals, to do all sorts of things. And what had happened was that humanity had rebelled. They had committed treason, and the charge or the verdict for their treason that God gives to humanity in Genesis 3.17, part of it is this phrase, the ground is cursed. Basically, the creation is not going to operate the way it's meant to operate. That's what Paul is referring to here when he says, subjected it uh, to futility. But then notice the phrase that, that comes after that. In So this brokenness of creation is not the period, it's not the final stop, there's actually something coming that's going to bring hope out of this brokenness. There's going to be a curse that's undone and creation is going to be renewed and creation will no longer be fractured, but creation will be whole. And so Paul is saying it's not enough for you to understand that the creation is broken. Any any fool can see that. But you need to have insight to know that that's not its purpose. That's not natural. And what's coming after that is hope. 
And this is why creation is longing, this language of groaning and waiting. Verse 21, groaning to be set free, set free from bondage, bondage to corruption and decay, from death. Death is an invasion on God's creation. And so creation is longing for that to be undone so that creation can experience the glorious freedom that the children of God will experience as well. So wrapped up in the redemption of God's people is the redemption and renovation of creation that comes through the return of Jesus. Now, if you don't know this full picture of creation, when you see suffering in the world, you feel like it's a period. Everything is broken. There's ho- this is hopeless, period. But if you understand what Paul is talking about here, you understand that creation's brokenness is a comma that is then going to lead us into a renewed creation. And this gets at what Paul is trying to make known to his listeners is that the groans of creation, this pain of longing, these groans of, of suffering and death, these, these, these displays of brokenness, they're actually an invasion on God's intent and design, but they're actually supposed to direct our eyes to the redemption that's coming. Think about it like this. When you hear, if you're in a hospital and you're there and, and you're hearing uh, groans of pain, groans of pain from a woman. You're walking through the halls and you just hear it off the side room. Your reaction to those groans of pain are going to depend on what ward of the hospital you're in. What purpose, what what is the uh, purpose of this ward? If it's the birthing center, you're going to say what? Well, that's pretty normal. Right? But if, but if it's the center for, for, a, for a counseling, if it's, the, if it's a mental ward, if it's something like that, you're going to say, whoa, this might not be right. And this is why Paul uses the illustration of, of childbirth, that creation is, is in this labor, this childbirth, that its suffering is actually going to be leading to a renewal. And that's the point that he's making, is that if we begin to see this, the groans and the brokenness that we see begin to direct our eyes to the glory that's going to come. But not only does the, the groans of creation direct us to the glory to come, but the groans of the Christian direct us to the glory that's going to come. Look at what Paul goes to uh, from here, 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The reason Paul uses the word sons there, not sons and daughters, is because he's elevating women to the same uh, status as men. The son would have the inheritance in the first century. So he's saying, men and women, we're all sons of God. So he's saying, not only does creation groan, but the Christian groans inwardly. The Christian groans. Now, this language of groaning is, again, right, he uses it here, childbirth, right? Now, think about childbirth in the first century with no medicine. Right? Think of the groaning that you would hear in that. That's what Paul is trying to get at. He's trying to get at this deep pain, this, this deep longing, this deep yearning. He says creation does it, but not only creation, the Christian groans. The Christian sees the brokenness of this world and groans and longs for things to be right. The Christian sees brokenness in their own life and they long for things to be right. Now, what's interesting about this is what Paul says here is that we're longing for the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting eagerly for adoption from God. But isn't the Christian already adopted by God? 
Isn't it true that the moment someone trusts in the work of Jesus in their place, by faith, they are instantaneously, decisively, in that momently, declared righteous and adopted and forgiven and clean in the sight of God? Isn't that true? Come on, you guys. Isn't that true? Is there a church in here? Isn't that true? Come on, you guys. Right? It's true. In that moment. So why are we waiting? Why are we waiting for adoption? We're eagerly awaiting this? I thought we had it already. But what the Apostle Paul is showing us, just like creation is longing for something, the Christian is longing for something too. And this is showing us this truth that we see throughout Scripture, that the salvation that is had by grace through faith in Jesus, it is here for those who believe, for anyone who believes, but it's not here in full. It's not fully realized yet. It's not fully experienced. We have it already, but in a way, we don't have it yet. And here's the key, right? We're awaiting for adoption as sons, and what's the comma clause? The redemption of our bodies. Now, now how many of you are going to say your body is already redeemed? How many of you are going to say you have the perfect body? Your body is perfect. God's already redeemed my body. I have it, right? Who who of us is going to say that? Right? And what Paul is, Paul is showing us here is that even for the Christian, they have an intimacy with God from the moment they trust in Jesus. They're made right before God. They're cleansed. They're forgiven. They're adored. They're loved by grace through faith in the work of Jesus. But they don't experience that in full. They don't have all of that right now. And Paul is showing us here what we see throughout Scripture is that salvation has tenses to it. Salvation has tenses as a past, as a present, and as a future. He's showing us that in the past, we, we, we were saved. We're saved the moment we trust in Jesus. That anyone, regardless of their past, regardless of, of anything about them, that we might qualify the moment they trust in Christ, they are saved, restored, redeemed, reconciled to God. Salvation has a past tense to it. Salvation also has a present. We are being saved. That God is making us more and more like Jesus. He's transforming us. We are being sanctified. We are being saved. See this in 1 Corinthians 15. And we will be saved as a future too. That when God judges the world, we will be saved from that judgment. But also part of this will be saved, this future tense of salvation is what Paul is talking about here, the redemption of our bodies. That our body will be whole, it will be healthy, it will be glorious, it will be incredible. Like comparing our glorified body to our current body would be like, it, it would just, it, there's just no comparison for it. Paul is saying that's coming and we're longing for that. But more than that, more than that, than just a, oh, a new upgraded body, the Christian is longing for not just an upgraded body, but their redeemed body in the presence of God. That's what the Christian is longing for to actually have a full experience of the presence of God in a renewed creation, in an embodied new heaven and new earth, free from the bondage of decay, death, brokenness, sin, and evil. That's what the Christian is longing for. That's what Paul is getting at here. The presence of God with the people of God from all centuries, all cultures, face to face with the God who loves us. That's the inner burning and longing in the heart of a person who has tasted the goodness of Jesus through trust in the gospel. 
So the Christian is longing for a full experience of God. Now, what's interesting is when you think about this is not only does the Christian long for the full experience of God, but people everywhere long for some taste of the divine, right? And so Paul is not just hitting, speaking to the Christians here. He's speaking to anyone who would then kind of tangentially see like, well, I want to know the divine too. And we find that all throughout our culture, that people are longing for the divine. And what we see in the gospel is that God is there for us. He is available. He has come in Christ. The Christian longs for the experience of God in a full and eternal way. But all people, whether they would maybe admit it or not, they've been searching. They long for transcendence for the divine in some way, shape, or form. I found this uh, quote looking at a book by an author named Julian Barnes. Um, his uh, it's kind of a memoir. Uh, it's called Nothing to be Frightened of, and the book is about how he's scared of death. Um, and the first line of the book is, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. This idea of, I don't even believe in this God, but I do long and wonder for an experience of the divine. Right? In, in many ways, we, we long and, and wonder for this, this sense of the divine, this sense of transcendence, even if we would identify as irreligious, atheistic, or agnostic. We long for some spiritual experience. I remember talking about this with, a, with one of my friends. Um, we were getting coffee, and he had just come back from a funeral uh, where um, they had honored his grandmother who had, who had died. And he, he just described to me being in this old church and hearing the singing. It was this, like, this transcendent moment for him. And, he, and, and we were talking through it, and I was like, man, it sounds like you're conflicted between this transcendent moment you had and this kind of secular worldview that you have. Like, they're in conflict. He's like, yeah, I felt like this was beautiful, but wait a second, I don't believe this. How do I reconcile these two things? It just felt like it was this, this moment of like, I kind of long for this, but this, I don't believe this exactly. And I feel like we, we experience that all over right? People of faith are often haunted by doubt, and people who, are, uh, who doubt are often haunted by faith, right? We see this clashing, and we see this longing for people who may say, I, I don't believe, but they long for these senses and moments of transcendence. The Scottish novelist Bruce Marshall had encapsulates this really well in a quote. Uh, he says, the man who rings the bell at the brothel unconsciously does so seeking God. So even some of our desires are rooted in a longing for the divine. You hear this in, in different, right? You hear this from people who are spiritual but not religious. I don't do this, but I got to find the divine somewhere. Right? You hear this, music is my sanctuary. Right? What is that? That's a longing for transcendence. So the question for us, if we look at this and we look at it on our cultural lens, one of the questions for us is this, are you looking for the divine everywhere but in Jesus? We're searching for transcendence everywhere, but in Jesus, because Christianity offers the full truth of God, intimacy and access with the true God in and through Christ, the God that doesn't just relate to us as a higher power, but actually, as we look at this text, he relates to us as a perfect father. And this is why the Christian longs, right? Paul says this, eagerly awaiting our adoption of sons, verse 23, the Christian longs to experience the fullness of God. Think about it like this. Earth is, in essence, for the Christian, a foster home. That this broken world is a foster home for the Christian. We're waiting to go home and be with our Father, or rather for our Father to show up here, renew the world, and, and set up shop here. We're longing for that. 
right? The adoption status has been cleared. The paperwork has been filed. We have the Holy Spirit, the first fruits, as Paul says. That's the sign that God has really actually loved us and saved us and made us his own. We have that down payment. We have that, that proof, but we're longing to actually be freed from our foster home and experience the fullness of God. And while we're in the foster home, we pray to our father, we seek to do our father's will, we try to be about our father's business and, and love people, love our neighbors and make disciples of Jesus, but we long to be freed from a world of death and decay, and we long to be in the presence of God. So Paul says that's what the Christian longs for. That's their heart's desire. That's the longing that's deep within them. Question then becomes, if we, never, if we never long for that, have we become so caught up in our foster home that we forgot? Have we become so, uh, so used to and so complacent with the brokenness and decay of this world that, that we don't even long for renewal anymore? Have we become so used to death and suffering and hatred and violence that we no longer cry out, God, renew this creation? Have we lost hope? If we don't groan for these things anymore, it may be a sign that we've lost hope that they're even coming. Is there any groaning and longing in your prayers and your deep desire? Paul, as he speaks about the Christian groaning for the fullness of God's experience, he also speaks about it, I think, in two ways in kind of the back of his mind um, when he says the redemption of our bodies, two ways. He talks about the body as the actual body, and then the flesh is in the kind of like the inner spiritual person. So he's, I think he's talking about both the, the physical, the body, and then the inner spiritual, which is the flesh, our, our nature, kind of our, our desires. And he's saying that, that part of the redemption of Jesus is a transformed, physical, glorified body. When the physical brokenness of our body is, is mended and healed and it becomes glorious and it's just an upgrade. Think of, think of just upgrading a really bad car to a really nice car, but a lot better than that. Um, that's kind of what it'll be like. Paul says we groan for that. When your body starts to break down, when you're hit with illness, you groan for that. That is right, good, and godly. But the other part that Paul, I think, is speaking about is, is, is our inner spiritual transformation, the redemption of our bodies in terms of the flesh in terms of our broken spiritual nature. And the way to think about the flesh that is, that is helpful is to think about it like this. It's our anti-God nature. It's the part of you that, though you may love Jesus, you have those moments where you're like, man, I love Jesus. But Jesus is kind of annoying. I love Jesus, and I want to go to church. I really don't want to go to church. I love Jesus, and I want to pray. Actually, I really don't want to pray. And you have those, those inner moments of turmoil. You know what I'm talking about? You guys are so spiritually mature, this doesn't make any sense. It's just me. It's just the pastor. Okay, great. One writer goes so far as to say that the proof that somebody is trusting Jesus and they are a Christian is that they always have an inner war within them, that I desire to do the things of God, but I also desire to live as my own God. It says that a Christian has that all the time. So they both have this great inner peace. God has accepted me through the work of Christ, but they also have this inner war. I want to do the things of God but I want to also do the things of Claude, right? We have this war within us. And Paul says the Christian groans to be freed from that. They long to be freed from that. The apostle Paul speaks about this. He's preaching to himself, I think, in part here, because one chapter earlier he says, I do the things that I do not want to do. 
He speaks about how the flesh in him, the anti-God nature within him, leads him to do things that he actually hates to do. And the things that he longs to do in honoring God, he struggles to do. Can anyone relate to that? That is what the apostle is saying to Christian groans, God, free me from this. I mean, can you even imagine yourself without an anti-God nature? Can you imagine yourself with no trace of anger? Can you imagine yourself with no trace of bitterness? Can you imagine yourself with not a trace of envy or jealousy? Can you imagine yourself without a trace of arrogance or lust or pride? And not even not having a trace of these things, but can you imagine yourself in such a state where for you to sin in these ways, to elevate yourself in these ways, is not even possible. Can you, can you even fathom that? That is the redemption of our bodies. Can you Im- imagine this? Imagine earth populated with people for whom it's not even possible for them to sin, with God at the center, and with a body that doesn't decay, and with death buried in a tomb, and with evil buried alongside of it. Can you even wrap your head around that? That is the glory to come. That's the way the world is actually supposed to be, and Jesus is going to make it so one day. But that's what Paul says the Christian longs for. And in a lot of ways, this this longing and this groaning for these things is like the stomach rumbling before a meal. That you're longing for these things, and it's actually preparing you in a way for the glory to come. So Paul is trying to give us a new way of looking at brokenness, to understand that we grieve the brokenness in our lives. We grieve the brokenness in our world. And God calls us throughout Scripture to enter into it and to act, to give, to serve, to love, to alleviate such things within the church and outside of the church. But that as we look at this brokenness, it actually creates in us a longing for the greater glory to come. That as we hear the groans of brokenness, we hear within them the echo of the redemption that's coming. We long and groan for this full experience of salvation with God. Now, longing and groaning and anticipating is great, but one of the questions I think we have to ask from this text is, how do we endure in the midst of brokenness? It's great to long for something, but how do we actually endure? How do we have the stamina to endure through it? And we endure, we endure by hope. We endure by the hope of the gospel. This is the beauty of Christianity, that God is calling us to a hope that is not just a, uh, a kind of blind hope, but it's a real, tangible, historical hope. I don't know how many of you read, the, uh, read any work by uh, Junot Diaz. I think he used to teach at Harvard. He wrote a really great novel called The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. And he wrote a piece in The New Yorker to, um, to, I think, one of his siblings who was struggling with the election results. And he says, our hope, our hope in this is radical hope. It's radical hope because we know we have to endure And he he says this, he says, we have to just hope, just hope that it will get better. And he says, what I'm trying to cultivate is not blind optimism, but what the philosopher Jonathan Lear calls radical hope. And then he says this, what makes the hope radical is that it is directed towards a future goodness that transcends the ability to understand what it is. And when I read that, I said, that sounds like a blind optimism. (laughs) Listen to this, 
a hope that is directed towards a future goodness that transcends the ability, the current ability to understand what it is. I don't know what that means. I read the rest of the article. He said, we got to keep hoping and fighting because the bad guys are going to not uh, stop hoping and fighting. I said, I don't know what your hope is. I mean, this sounds like a, a rally call that I would hear in a G.I. Joe movie. They're not going to stop. We're not going to stop. Keep fighting. What is this hope? You, you told me it's not a blind optimism, but you're, you're telling me a future goodness that transcends the current ability to understand what it is. That sounds like an optimism that I don't know what it is or what it's rooted in. How can I endure that? How can I get on uh, CNN and watch kids crush under a building and endure that? What hope is there for me? What hope is there for us? What hope is there for myself when I'm confronted with my sin and brokenness every single day? What hope is there for you? Is it a notion that, well, things are going to get better? Let's look from first century to 21st. Have things gotten better for us? We have advanced, but we have gotten bloodier. So what is the hope that anchors us to endure in the midst of the brokenness of creation, in the brokenness of ourselves? What is it? Well, for the Christian, it's a historical hope. It is a hope that Jesus Christ was born in public. Jesus Christ ministered in public for three years and changed the world. Jesus Christ was crucified in public. Jesus Christ rose from the dead in public with public documents, with public eyewitnesses. And Jesus Christ ascended in public. So the hope that Paul is calling us to in 24 and 25 of this text is, is not a hope that says, it's not, a, it's not a blind hope, but actually it is. It's a hope that's rooted in a historical event and act, a historical person. And what he's saying is, we've seen this hope, and based on what we've seen, we hope for something that we don't see yet, that he will come back and he will renew this brokenness because we saw what he started and we trust that he's going to finish it. That's what the Apostle Paul is calling us to. It shows us that through the gospel, through the salvation that Christ has won for us, faith in Jesus gives us a new perspective. Now we can do what Paul calls us to do in verse 18. He says, the sufferings of right now are not worthy to be compared with the glory to come. What Paul is saying is, he's trying to get us to do this. Don't ignore the brokenness, listen to it. Don't ignore the groans of brokenness and death and decay in the world and in your life. He's saying, listen to the groans. Listen to the groans of creation. Listen to the groans of believers. Listen to the groans of this broken world. And as you listen to those groans, you know what you're going to hear in them? You're going to hear the sound of the glory that's coming. The glory is on the way. Paul is trying to get us to do this. Use the depths of the groans that you hear to measure the glory that's going to come. So he's saying, when you see brokenness, grieve it, act on it, do something about it, but use it as a measuring stick to understand that the glory that's coming is going to be 10 times greater than the brokenness that we weep about right now. That's what Paul is trying to say. And he's saying, this is basic Christianity 101 because this is how the gospel changes our perspective on everything. So when you see brokenness, the Christian says, this is not right. I'm going to weep. I'm going to act. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give. I'm going to serve. But the Christian also sees within that brokenness hope because they say, this is not right, but one day it will be set right. Do you see it? 
Do you see how the gospel changes everything because of the crucifixion of Christ where, guess what he did? He groaned in suffering upon the cross to lead us into the glory of salvation. Don't you see the pattern? So when Paul gives us verse 18, it's just a pattern that Jesus himself has already walked in. Jesus is simply calling us to look at the world through the lens of his own suffering that started with groans and ends with glory. That's what he's going to do for the earth. That's what he's going to do for the Christian. That's what he's going to do to this renewed creation. So when you see sin damaging your relationship with others, when you groan over that, remember that the glory to come is a renewed creation. When you see sin infecting your relationship with God, remember that the glory to come is you being restored to God in a full experience of that restoration. When you groan over the death and decay in our world, remember that the glory to come is a renewed creation with all tribes and tongues in harmony, united under the presence of God. So because of the gospel, we do this. We use the depths of our groans to measure the glory to come because of the work of our Savior. Gospel gives us a whole new perspective that fills us with hope. Let's take a moment to pray. So we usually do, we can respond, um, encourage us to respond in silent prayer. As you do this, um, if you're here and you're not sure what you believe or you're seeking, asking questions, I'd ask you in this time, I encourage you to, to say, God, if you're real, show yourself to me. If you're here and you're following Jesus, I encourage you to ask, God, help me to have this perspective that helps me see the glory to come in the midst of brokenness. Let's take a moment to pray and reflect silently. Father, we pray that you would fill us with the hope of Christ, that in the midst of being overwhelmed by our own brokenness, that we would remember that you will start the good work that you have completed in us. We pray you would fill us with the hope of Christ as we stare at the brokenness of our, our city, our country, and our world. And that we would remember that that is not the final word. God, would you give us perspective to see that just as Jesus walked through suffering that led to glory for the nations, you will work redemption out of the suffering that we see all around us. And as we uh, wait and act and, and live in step with your word in this brokenness, God, we pray that you would let us live as people with hope, but that also, God, you would help us to lift our eyes from just the things we see and, and look to your son and, and long for his return. That we would live fruitful and active lives with the time and talents and treasures that you give us, but that we would also groan and long and say, Jesus, come soon to renew this broken creation. We pray this for your glory. We pray this for our good as we step into this truth and are filled with the hope of Christ. Amen.